0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello,
1: and welcome to Chronic, the podcast that asks what health and well-being look like when you're chronically unwell. I'm Lucy Pasha Robinson, opinion editor at HuffPost and chronic illness sufferer. This is an anti-wellness podcast because here we won't be talking about how to hack your health or the most effective green juice cleanses. Instead, each week I'll be chatting with a different guest navigating new and unexpected parts, and hearing how they thrive in their relationships, career and sex lives along with the usual hurdles that come with being an adult human, all with just a little extra baggage in tow. Today we're going to be speaking with YouTuber and sex educator Hannah Witten, who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at the age of seven. Hannah, hello and welcome.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's so good to have you. Really looking forward to it. So we kind of wanted to accompany these talks in the Chronic Podcast with some kind of activity to kind of keep the hands busy and things because Mm. some of these conversations can be quite challenging and can bring up more difficult feelings, and especially in these strange COVID times where we can't get together in person.
0: Yeah.
1: I think you have some drawing materials. I also have some drawing materials. Today we're going to be doing a little bit of uh, meditative
0: colouring. Yeah, Um, that's what it feels like to me. I've got like a... (laughs) I'm not drawing, I'm colouring in.
1: I should mention, I'm in my husband's childhood bedroom, but I've got one of his old Legos, (gasps) which I'm gonna be attempting to draw. Oh,
0: I love that,
1: yeah. A nice blue beetle. So there you go. We'll have to show each other our results as we go. I've already (laughs) started. So Hannah, you've got a stoma, you've had a stoma since your surgery in 2018. How did you name
0: your stoma? I believe (laughs) you
1: gave her an interesting nickname.
0: Yeah, her name is Mona, M-O-N-A. And this came about when I was still in hospital after the surgery, um, recovering, like getting used to everything really high on lots of morphine. And also at this time, I was watching and consuming a lot of content online of other people with stomas to kind of get a sense of what my new life was going to be like, really. And quite a few people talked about naming their stomas. And there was a lot of alliteration, which I like played around with, but I was just like, nah, that's been done, that's been done. And in that first like week of my stoma's life, she was so noisy. I mean, she still is like, occasionally like noisy and People, if they're, like, close enough to me, will hear her, like, farting and pooing and stuff. Um, But that first week, like, my whole body, like, adjusting to this new digestive system, um, it was loud. Um, And so I called her Mona because it was like, she moans a lot, but then also it's a nice name, and then also it sort of rhymes with stoma. Mona the stoma.
1: Wow, so that first week of, like, embarrassing noises and things, that must have been quite a lot to come to terms with, how did you, how did you kind of confront that embarrassment at the beginning?
0: Uh, Being really high on drugs, maybe. (laughs) Like, I think in that first week, I just remember being so grateful for my health because before that surgery, I was so ill and I was in so much pain. Um, And granted, like post-surgery, I was still in pain, but it was a different kind of pain. Like I didn't feel ill anymore. And I don't really have a better way of describing it, but it was like waking up. And even though, you know, I had like wound pains because my stomach had been sliced open in my body and in my mind, like it was like this fog had just completely lifted. Um, And I like felt like myself again, whereas I did not feel like me before that. And so the fact that she was farting and my stoma was, like, making all these noises and, you know, that all of these, like, weird, potentially embarrassing, like, body functions were happening with my, like, family and close friends, like, around me, it, it didn't matter. Because to, in my head, it was, like, the fact that I'm alive right now and the fact that, like, I'm not suffering anymore, like, that, like, nothing else matters. That that's kind of, I think that's why it just did not bother me. And it was new, it was new for all of us. So we were like, oh, my God, that's so weird. Like, that's fascinating. Like, oh, my God, your body's doing this very strange thing right now.
1: The fact that you felt like that and you felt relief after that surgery, I suppose it speaks to how awful you felt beforehand. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about how that came about and what the stoma does for you?
0: Yes. So, as you mentioned, my condition is called ulcerative colitis, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. And it's a pretty unpredictable illness It can be a daily thing that you have to manage, or it can come in flares, some more mild, some more serious. Mine always came in quite severe flares, but I would have like a few years in between my flares. And I was coming off the back of a 10 year remission. And then, I don't know, something happened. My body was just like, right, you've you've had your fun. We're now going to give you your worst ever flare up ever in your entire life. Basically the symptoms are abdominal pain, Urgencies to go to the toilet, diarrhoea, blood in the diarrhoea, and then like fatigue, sometimes vomiting. I was also vomiting and I ended up being hospitalised and I was in hospital for about two and a half weeks feeling the worst I've ever felt physically, mentally, all of, all of that. None of the drugs were working. I wasn't improving. And then I had to have emergency surgery basically, to have my stoma fitted. So they removed my large intestine, which is the diseased part of my body. There's lots of different kinds of stoma. Mine is called an ileostomy because it comes out of the ileum. And so I basically have a piece of my small intestine on the outside of my body where all of my waste comes out of. And then I have a bag attached yeah. to my body that collects yeah. the waste.
1: There's always weird Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I have endometriosis and I was diagnosed in 2014 and people obviously have a lot of opinions about chronic illness mm. and that always comes with, in my experience, a lot of unsolicited advice. <laughs> um, what has been like some of the annoying stuff that you've encountered since you have the stoma?
0: Honestly, like, a lot of the advice that I've been given about living with a stoma has been really good because it's come from other people who have had stomas or currently have a stoma. So that advice I really appreciate because it's like, oh, this thing has helped me. Maybe it will help you. Um, There was a lot of unsolicited advice about diet. Like people talking about my lifestyle before I had surgery, basically being like, well, maybe if you ate these foods, you wouldn't have had to have surgery. And like, you should have known better.
1: So infuriating. just saying
0: these really like unnecessary, unhelpful entitled things about my body and about my health it's quite minimizing isn't it like you
1: didn't ask for this there's nothing you did all of us have a certain amount of luck or bad luck Mm. in terms of like the health that we have
0: especially like around something that was like such a traumatic experience for me such a life-changing event that ultimately i actually had no control over and then people insinuating that actually I did have control over it and I made bad choices.
1: I think this is a really interesting topic around like the why of, of why people feel that they need to intervene like that or need to explain your chronic illness in some way. I wonder if there's just like a general societal discomfort with the idea that, that someone might be chronically ill and, or there might not be a cure for something.
0: I think there's a comfort that maybe people have if they can explain everything away by personal choice, because then they might feel like they're immune to anything bad happening to them that is out of their control. You know, if you're living within a a framework of any bad health that others have, that was because of their lifestyle, that was because of like who they are, that was because of, you know, whatever reasons. If you live within that mindset, Then what you're actually doing is is just telling yourself like, I can stay healthy if I make all of these choices and I do all of these things right. Um,
1: I think that really feeds into like our whole narrative around wellness in general, Mm. like the way that we talk about wellness and well-being, it very much relies on the person and society in general having perfect health, mm. I don't think that there's, that there's much room in those kind of conversations for imperfect health or living with a condition that make, sometimes makes life more difficult, yeah. um, but still wanting to optimise your well-being. Is that your experience as well?
0: Yeah, I think it's a, a, a weird one because it's like, that's striving for perfect health. To me now, I'm just like, that's ridiculous. That doesn't exist. But having a chronic illness and being someone who's disabled, but also being someone who like, I, I, just, I just I know that health fluctuates, like I've been worse, like I've been in a really severe flare up. So to me, like that is like really, really bad, poor health. But That doesn't mean I'm at perfect health now like I don't have a colon like (laughs) um (laughs) but I would still actually consider myself like healthy right now even though I also would consider myself a chronically ill person so like I don't think it's this black and white thing of healthy unhealthy um I think it is a spectrum and it like varies from person to person and throughout your life throughout the day you know um how you're feeling and this like obsession with health and like you know you people will say like as long as we're all healthy and happy everything's fine you know like that's mm-hmm. a, and that's a sentiment that is really well-meaning you know my family members you know all say it um my great-grandma before she passed like health was like the main thing that she would always wish for her family um and it did make me think i was like oh it is is light like in that mindset does that mean that life isn't worth living if you aren't perfectly healthy of course not um Mm. but as someone who has like been severely ill and then woken up from a surgery feeling infinitely better and really grateful for my health I also know that like health is important so like Mm. but it is this like balancing act of really like I guess, understanding, like, what do you have control over? What don't you? Being grateful for what you have and knowing that it varies throughout your lifetime, basically.
1: I, I feel similarly, actually. I would say that I am healthy right now, but I still live with a chronic health condition. Whereas I, I've definitely encountered people that have struggled to accept that health is changeable. <laughs> yeah. or, you seem to be very much, I'm sure you have your bad days, but quite at peace with your health and where mm. you're at. Tell me about that period post-surgery where I know you didn't feel so resilient and you were feeling really low.
0: Yeah, so that was after my second surgery, which was another emergency surgery five months after my first one. Um, and that was because I had adhesions in my small intestine, which is basically where like the scar tissue from your first surgery gets all attached and caught up in your small intestine and it gets so knotted that... Uh, you can't actually pass through mm. any waste. And so I had horrible cramps and everything was coming up out of my mouth. Um, and that can be really dangerous. And so I had to have emergency surgery. Like literally like went into a on Monday, was in surgery on Wednesday. Like it was like, poof. Um, but yeah, I remember feeling uh, really mentally low after that surgery because um, I... Had worked so hard, not not worked so hard, but I had, I felt like I'd come a really long way in my recovery from my first surgery. Like physically, my like I was, you know, I I kind of like had mobility issues after my first surgery. It took me a really long time to be able to stand up straight, to be able to walk for more than ten minutes by myself. I used a walking stick a lot of the time. Like my recovery took a long time, um, but mentally, I was great. Because I was comparing it to my mental state when I was really ill, I was just like ready to like get back to my life. But then what happened with the second one is that mentally, I was terrible. Mentally, I was just in a state of despair of like back in hospital, back having surgery. Like, what's the point if this can just happen again? I had never heard of adhesions before. So it wasn't even something that was that I was aware of that could happen because it is quite rare. Yeah, so I just remember feeling really mentally downtrodden after that. Mm. Back to square one, like, what's the point? But as soon as I started to notice that my physical recovery was faster than it was the first time around, I was like, this is a step back, but it's not as much as a mm-hmm. step back as I thought it was going to be.
1: That's interesting that even though physically you were in that worst place the first first time, the second time, it had a worse impact, I suppose, on your morale and, and feeling that you could overcome in your conversations with people around chronic illness, do you think that there's like a presumption of trauma there? There's maybe like a sense that you live with feeling that there's something wrong, that something is a little bit broken in terms of living with Ill- with illness.
0: Yeah, obviously, like I, I do have a lot of that from the recent time of being really ill and surgery and everything. Um, but the way that I think about like feeling wrong or broken is... Uh, that mindset just does not help me. Um, Like feeling, feeling like a broken person or like feeling not whole in any way. um, I really try and like avoid going down that kind of rabbit hole. And I've been pretty resilient to it. Um, But I do, I do acknowledge that there is like, not a piece of me missing in a spiritual sense or like as a like in a person sense but there is a literal organ missing but I say that in a kind of like Mm -hmm. matter of fact biological like tongue-in-cheek kind of way and for me personally it really helps in my recovery and it helps in my self-esteem it helps in my like sense of self to own that to like really really own it in a way that like I maybe bring it up with my friends more often than I should. Like, I'm like, did you know I don't have a colon? Um, And yeah, I got, you know, got some like, not great medical stories. Yes, I was also an ill kid. It wasn't fun to go into the hospital every single day. But also I was still a kid.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's refreshing to hear, you know, those experiences of people that that have lived with challenging things, but actually Mm -hmm. have been like, no, actually, this has just been part of my life. And I'm Dealing with it okay. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: One thing I want to talk to you about, because I know we both share views on this, is belly buttons. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, (laughs) Uh, Every time I've had a surgery, I've had three surgeries, they go in through my belly button Mm. and every time I wake up, I have a new belly button. (laughs) Yeah. And which is like a really just like a strange experience to look down at your body and, and not kind of recognise it. Having mm-hmm. to reacquaint yourself with this new thing that has always been like a defining feature of your torso. Yeah. Um. I know that's also something that you struggled with.
0: Yeah. So, um. yeah, I didn't have keyhole surgery. I had um, open surgery, which means they, like, cut. It, my scar goes from, like, a few inches above my belly button to a few inches below. So, basically, they cut right through my belly button on both occasions. Um, and yeah, it's it's very weird. My belly button for ages was just like this diagonal slit. Like it didn't, it wasn't a belly button anymore, but like more recently I've actually noticed that it's kind of like opening back up again. And I'm like, oh, hello friend. <laughs> um, but, but I actually, I was just thinking about this, of why I think the belly button thing is so weird. And I think it's because that was where you were attached to your mother in the womb, like through an umbilical cord. And it's a really old episode, but do you ever see that episode of The Simpsons where there were clones? Yes. And in the episode, the way that they managed to figure out who were the clones and who were the real people was that the clones didn't have belly buttons. Yes. Because they were, weren't were manufactured in a womb. And so, and that always comes to mind because, like, to <laughs> me, having a belly button is being human, right? Which obviously is mm. not true because some people actually just don't have belly buttons for whatever reason, or like have had surgery, or you know, so many different things. Um, but in my head, I'm like, oh my god, I'm a clone, like I don't have a belly button. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. So that's what it like symbolizes for me a bit.
1: That is so weird.
0: It's a it's a weird one because. I have the scar and I have the stoma, but I also think that the surgery has just like changed how my stomach, how would you say lands? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have. Carries itself. Yeah, how it carries itself, <laughs> how it moves. Like I I always felt like before I had like one of those baby round stomachs where it was all kind of smooth, but bloated, that that was like my normal natural stomach where it would kind of like sit and now it's a bit more like lumpy and bumpy and has a pouch and you know like where it kind of like pokes out over your pubic your mon's pubis <laughs> yeah And um, yeah and so it's just like that's new to me as well of that mm. my my stomach has not only got these new
1: adornments uh but a new shape one thing i definitely am aware of is like you can fall into a rabbit hole of looking at old pictures of yourself, of those old pictures of your tummy mm. with your with your old belly button and um, your old shape.
0: Yeah, I try... When I talk about it and when I think about it, I just... I really try and just think about it really matter-of-factly mm. rather than uh, attaching or projecting any, like, emotion or morality to it. And, uh, yeah, I... You know, I... Now and then, love posting pictures in bikinis and, and in uh, my underwear, like online and stuff. Um, and so there are, there's a lot of evidence of my old body. And yeah, I just, I occasionally find myself going down this rabbit hole of like, looking at those old pictures and being like, oh, look at that like, hmm. untouched stomach that's nice and smooth. And oh, look at that belly button. <laughs> oh, look at that like piece of skin that doesn't exist anymore like that I don't I don't actually get to see that area of my stomach like Mm. it's always covered up um yeah and I just like end up feeling just like deflated and sad and then I always Mm. puts you in a mindset of loss as well Mm. of that you've lost
1: something I think it's really easy as well to like glamorize that period like pre-surgery or Or pre-diagnosis whatever that might be and think oh those were the heydays and I didn't have any problems then and Mm. looking back at old pictures of before I was diagnosed I was I was diagnosed when I was 24 and so I've got like Mm. loads of pictures of me on like beaches in my very early 20s which now as a, a 30 year old woman to compare myself I have to remind myself, like, mm-hmm. you also kind of, like, mm-hmm. hated your body then too. Like, mm-hmm. you're <laughs> you're also just, like, a a woman in the West that has internalised a lot of shame, um, you yeah. know, around around bodies. And that's kind of a lifelong process in lots of ways.
0: Yeah, I would think that too as well, actually, of, like... But then that would also, like, send me down this other rabbit hole of, like, oh, why didn't I appreciate that body when I had it? And then I'm, like, getting angry at my past self and like shaming my past self for like having body image issues (laughs) um so yeah it's just like it's all this like any any kind of comparing my body or comparing how I felt about my body to my past self for me it's just like not helpful like that is in the past that it doesn't matter anymore like what I do next and how I feel about myself now that's Mm. that's what matters
1: yeah quite right so I know that Rebuilding that body confidence, you had to get to know your new body, I suppose. How did you do that?
0: Um, (laughs) In true Hannah style, I did lingerie photo shoots (laughs) with some of my favourite photographer friends. Amazing. Um, Yeah, that, that to me just was just something that I really wanted to do. I just wanted some like really beautiful photos of myself in my underwear with my stoma bag. I have two of them by Linda Blacker um framed in my bedroom because <laughs> why not
1: because why not exactly so was was like feeling like sexy
0: post surgery
1: was that like a bit was that a challenge for you was that part of the rebuilding the mm, confidence
0: yeah like my like sexuality and like sexual identity is like that's quite important to me and like an integral part of my identity as a whole and so being able to still feel one, like, a, a sexual being in myself and a sexual agent, but then also, like, still feeling desired by someone else, at, you know, my partner, um, but all people in general. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and also, yeah, I guess, like, desiring to myself as well. Um, but, yeah, that, that was also definitely a part of it and, and important to me, not just to kind of prove to myself that I was still... Sexy, sexual, like, desire, desirable, like, whatever it was, um, with a stoma, but also kind of... To also show to other people, like, hey, disabled people are sexual beings. Disabled people, like, have all of these different facets to their identity.
1: What about the stoma specifically when it came to your sex life? What kind of concerns did you have introducing that third party almost. Yeah,
0: (laughs) honestly, my partner was, like, so great about everything. I'd just been in hospital for a month, so, like, even though our sex life was something that um, was up for discussion, it was more my physical recovery from the surgery that kind of was the main thing in our sex life. Like, I, because of my surgery and because of my lack of abs... I couldn't orgasm. That was, like, something that I didn't really consider would happen, but I was just like, I can't. Like, I do not have the muscle ability to, like, push myself, like, over the edge. And I was just like, oh, my God, I've lost the ability to orgasm.
1: What well, That must have been alarming at first for you. It was,
0: it was terrifying.
1: So then by working on your ab- abdominal muscles, that was able to come back?
0: Yeah, it was just part of my, like, just general recovery, like, as I was able to like start to stand up straight, like walk for longer, um, eventually I was able to also orgasm. (laughs) Mm. Um, But yeah, also just like the reassurance of just like, do you still find me attractive? You know, like those those questions just like, even, even like today, like two years, two and a half years after getting a stoma, like I still occasionally feel like the need to ask that, even though I know the answer, but I just kind of like I need to hear it. Um, mm. but yeah, that kind of like reassurance of like, no, I still find you attractive, like, honestly, doesn't bother me at all, don't even notice it. Um, and I think with sex as well, like, it the stoma itself, like, now that I'm like recovered physically, um, the stoma itself, like, just doesn't really come into it at all. Um, There's, like, Mm. a little contraption on the bags that I use where you can, like, fold it in half because of the Velcro, so it kind of, like, um, becomes smaller. Um, I tend to have to empty it beforehand, but in the same way that someone might need to go for a wee before sex. Um, But one thing, actually, it has done is it's opened my eyes to the world of um, crotchless underwear. So, like, Mm. yeah, just, like, wanting to kind of... for lack of a better phrase sex it up a bit just kind of like explore (laughs) things that I wouldn't have explored before but I was just like hmm, what if I bought something that was like really sexy and like covered um my stomach in a way that um held down the bag so it was out of the way so it wasn't like faffing around with it but still had access all areas Mm. and honestly it's been a Been a game changer. Love them.
1: That's so interesting. Like having to, like, I bet a lot of people don't even put that much thought into their sex lives, especially Mm. if they've been with their partner for a long time or I suppose something like this, it kind of forces you to think like, okay, well, there are some adaptations that need to be made or that
0: I would like to make. And Mm. I suppose it, 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 did it bring you closer? Um, yeah, I think it just kind of allowed us to kind of start from scratch again so we were pretty long term, pretty like serious like at, at that point, even though it still was like quite early days. And I think sometimes you can get into a bit of like a sex routine. And then the fact that I came out of hospital, like we had to kind of like start from scratch again in terms of like learning what we liked and you know, getting to know each other's bodies, um, learning what we were able to actually do together. That, you know, like, what positions could I be in? What would and wouldn't cause me pain? So, yeah, it was quite nice that, like, the whole thing brought us back to that, like, exploratory phase when you might kind of be like, oh, I I know this person's body. Now I know what makes them tick, rather than, like, asking again.
1: One thing that I, that I encountered... Um through going through surgeries and especially like having a gynecological condition Mm. is I ended up feeling like that whole zone was like quite off limits Mm. and quite um everything had just been really medicalized for a really long time
0: this is why I've never had anal sex my butthole is like too medicalized and too much pain and I had enemas have to be like shoved up my butt by my parents because we had to take some home after I was discharged from hospital. Um, when I was 15, So before I'd even ever had vaginal sex, I had my parents inserting things into my anus. Mm -hmm. So like that zone for me is just like a non-erogenous zone. (laughs) I'm just like,
1: nah. Well, I saw um, a women's health physiotherapist for quite a long time to rehabilitate my pelvic floor muscles because Mm. sometimes with endometriosis, like that whole area is so oversensitized that your pelvic floor doesn't know how to relax. wow.
0: So is it just tense yeah, all the time? Yeah,
1: exactly. And it's wow. something that more often than not is associated with post-childbirth, like pelvic floor dysfunction. You think of like incontinence and things. But one of the things that she had me do, which I was like quite resistant to at first, was um, she was like, look, Lucy, like it's really common to feel that that part of you, like your vulva and your vagina, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Like, because, you know, that it's been mm. so medicalized for so long. I want you to go home and get a mirror and just like you know have a look like very mm-hmm. strong like 70s sex sexual revolution vibes um yeah and at first I was like really resistant to it because I just i and then I started thinking about why and it was because I'd got this idea of like oh no that's really off limits and that's like a scary place and and um yeah I, and I'd kind of even like imagined it being this like really grotesque thing because of I think because of all of the surgeries and the pain associated with with the conditions that I developed. And um, but actually I did it. And it was Mm -hmm. it was like so eye opening because it it wasn't (laughs) what I imagined. It was like, you know, perfectly fine looking. There was like nothing monstrous about it. And and it wasn't even really a sexual thing. It was more just like allowing Mm -hmm. me to reconnect with like parts of my body that had that I had I had kind of disassociated from um yeah and so I told all my friends about it even like friends that don't have don't have illnesses
0: just like guys here's a pocket mirror exactly you should
1: do it Mm -hmm. I bet you've done it Hannah
0: I've, I've sat on the floor in front of one of my full-length mirrors and my legs spread just yeah, like see, rummaging. Just... You don't
1: need me to tell you the sex educator to do that. but um...
0: Yeah, no, I really love just looking at myself naked in the mirror. It's like not a sexual thing, but it really is just about like looking at my body for what it is, kind of like what I was saying about being really matter-of-fact rather than assigning emotion to it or 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 focusing on what I think my body looks like in Mm. my head. Because we all have like an imagined body and then we have like our actual body. And so for me, it's about really just like facing my actual body and just like giving it a jiggle and looking at it from all different angles and really just like acknowledging that my stoma bag is there, but also just like really looking at my body as a a whole. Mm. And it it doesn't have to be super intense. So like I, most of the time, I clock myself naked in the mirror because I'm just like getting ready, you know, in the morning or I just got out of the shower. And then I just like clock it and I'm just like, oh, there's me. Um, So it, it can be an intentional thing if you like want it to be a really intentional thing. But I think for me, it's not just like necessarily about like, okay, and now I'm going to intentionally take my clothes off and like stare at myself in the mirror. But just, like, just being mm. naked and, like, being with my body and there just happens to be a mirror mm. there.
1: <laughs> Allowing that space for that yeah. to be a comfortable thing and a natural thing. Yeah. You actually told me about this last time we spoke, but there's, there is a study that proves a link between viewing images of non sexualized nude bodies and positive mm. feelings towards your own body.
0: Yeah, there was a, a TV show, I think it was Channel 4 one, Naked Beach, is that the name of a show? That research is what, like, inspired them making Mm. that show, basically. So that's what that show was, like, based off, which was that they took people who had, like, low self-esteem and, like, body image issues and made them hang out with a whole bunch of, like, people of all different shapes and sizes who were all naked. And, you know, the, the participant didn't have to get naked if they didn't want to, but it was just about hanging around other bodies and they did lots of activities. So they would see naked bodies in movement and being joyful. And yeah, it that is, like, proven to boost your own body image. That's amazing. I'll
1: have to watch Naked Beach. That sounds quite entertaining.
0: But we're we're so um, scared of nudity Mm. because we immediately think it's sexual, so we just kind of, like, have an aversion to it, when actually, like, the more, like, naked bodies that we saw in non-sexual contexts... I honestly think the fact that I saw my parents naked so much as a child and growing up is one of the reasons why... I've, you know, I've got that good solid foundation of body confidence Mm. because my parents would just like walk around the house naked, like in between the bedroom and the bathroom, just like wouldn't care that their children or teenage daughters saw them. They were just like, (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: some people don't just get naked in their own houses, though. There are nudist communities, naturist communities. Is that something you would ever consider? dipping a toe into?
0: No I don't think so. My grandparents were nudists though. My mum says that they were very embarrassing and horrific teenage oh memories. Oh my
1: god <laughs> did she have to go as a teenager?
0: <laughs> yeah so they would I think my grandparents would like take my mum and her sister on these like holidays to nudist beaches. But, it, but I've been to Germany a few times and like they are it, out, like on the outskirts of Berlin there's lots of like lakes and there's lots of People just, like, sunbathing naked.
1: There's something so liberating about that, and, like, it removes a level of pressure, I suppose, in a way as well, of, like, feeling that your body is being scrutinised all the time. Um, Hannah, that is such a good tip. Thank you for sharing that with me. Obviously, I've I had my own experience with my mirror vag story, um, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to be giving that a go, um, of, of uh, just spending a bit more, perhaps, mindful time appreciating my naked form
0: go for it I will You're
1: welcome. <laughs> so lastly I just want to ask obviously this podcast is all about living well with imperfect health mm-hmm. um and I would just love to hear what does living well mean to you
0: um so for me I think living well and living with you know, good health, whatever that means um, for me is about acceptance, accepting, you know, my body, accepting my health or lack thereof, accepting what I'm able to do, especially like during my recovery when it came to working and socialising and all, all of the things that we value in society in terms of like being productive and being busy. I think being ill has like taught me the value of rest <laughs> and the necessity of rest. But yeah, I think for me, living well is about actually listening to my body. What You know, like whatever my body is telling me, like accepting that to be what actually I need rather than fighting against it.
1: So we've come to the end of the podcast and it's about that time that we need to reveal to each other what we've been drawing this whole time. Hannah, yeah. I can still hear you furiously scribbling. <laughs> it's too late. Pencils down, Hannah. <laughs> okay, one, two,
0: three. <gasps> Oh, yours is really that, nice. I mean, that, looks, that looks exactly like the... you got the shape. Spot on. This has just proven
1: what we suspected, Hannah, is in that we cannot multitask. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Hannah, for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thanks for having me. This was great. If you
1: want to find out more about stomas, ulcerative colitis or sex education, look Hannah up at Hannah Witten on YouTube, Instagram and Twitter. The end. The end. (laughs)